Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your, your word and to see what you'd have us to learn from this. And we ask you just to bless us as we examine it, and we thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel 19, and we're going to have a history lesson here tonight, so be ready. Verse 1, Moreover, take you up this lamentation for the princes of Israel, and say, What is your mother? A lioness? She lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps among young lions. She brought up one of her whelps, and it became a young lion, and it learned to catch the prey, and it devoured men. The nations also heard of him, and he was taken up in their pit, and they brought him and changed into the land of Egypt. Now when she saw that she had waited and, and her hope was lost, then she took another of her whelps and made him a young lion. And he went up and down among the lions, and he became a young lion and learned to catch the prey and devour men. And he knew their desolate places and their palaces and laid waste their cities. And the land was desolate in the fullness thereof by the noise of his roaring. When the nations set up set against him on every side of from the provinces and spread their net over him. He was taken in their pit and they put him in the ward in chains and brought him to the king of Babylon and brought him into the holds and, and his, that his voice should be heard no more upon the mountains of Israel. Your mother is like a vine in, in your blood planted by the waters. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. And she had strong rods for her scepters and them that bear rule. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches, and she appeared in, in the height with the multitude of her branches. But she was plucked up in her fury, and she was cast down into the ground, and cast the east wind dried her up her fruit, and strong rods were broken and withered, and fire consumed them. And now is she planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground, and the fire has gone out of the rod of her branches which has devoured her fruit, so that she has no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. This is lamentation and shall be for a lamentation. And this kind of sounds kind of uh, interesting when you read it, but it really is a lesson in history that uh, Ezekiel is giving them. And just to help you understand why we know that, we're going to read when it, a little more about it. We're going to go to first, uh, excuse me, Second Kings. Chapter 24, and starting at verse 1. In his day, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, and bands of Syrians, and bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did, and also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with the innocent blood, which the Lord, God, uh, which the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. And the king of Egypt got not, came not any more out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt unto the river Euphrates all that pertained unto the king of Egypt. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months, and his mother's name was Nahusta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. 
And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servant of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city with his servant, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He and his mother and his servants and the princes of his officers and the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign and carried him out thence with all all the treasure of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut to pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple as the Lord had said. And he carried away all of Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men and the valiant even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained, save the poor sword of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon and, and the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land. Those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem and to, to Babylon. And all the men of might, some 7,000 and craftsmen and smiths of 1,000, all that, all that were strong and apt for war, even the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And the king of Babylon made Mathanaiah, his father's brother, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Lipna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. And... And through the anger of the Lord, it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judea and Judah until he has cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So we're seeing here the, the history that this is talking about. And then we're going to read in Second Chronicles. Giving you just some history lessons here. Maybe reading chapters you either have not read or not paid much attention to as you read them. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter 36. Then the people in the land took Jehoiahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's stead. Am I reading the right thing? Yes. And Jehoiahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three years in Jerusalem. And the king of Egypt put him down at Jerusalem and condemned the land a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt married Elikim, his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoiahaz, his brother, and carried him into Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and in that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. And against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters, and carried him into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried the vessels of the house of the Lord to, to Babylon, and put them in his temple in Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and his abominations which he did and that which he found was found in him, behold, are they not written in the book of kings of Israel and Judah? And Jehoiachin, son of his son, reigned in his stead. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three, uh, three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and in that year was expired King Nebuchadnezzar, sent and brought him to Babylon with the goodly vessels of the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah the brother of king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did that was evil in the sight of the Lord and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against the king Nebuchadnezzar who made him swear by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart. 
from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief priests and all the people transgressed very much after the abomination of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord. And it goes on to show you that this was the last king. So we've kind of hinted at both of these, but I wanted to read because this is a chapter that's all about the history. We wanted to go back and read some of this history that is the setting of Ezekiel's uh, message. And remember, we've talked, Ezekiel was one of the first group in the first group that was taken into Babylon with the king. Daniel is in that group. Uh, Jeremiah gets to stay in Jerusalem and preach from Jerusalem side of things as Ezekiel is going to preach in Babylon. And they both have the same message, repent or, or be taken out. And we're going to see the final fall of Jerusalem and Israel. And the first wave took out the king and his, his main children. The second wave took out all of the soldiers, all of the talented people. And it said the poorest of the poor was who was left. And that's who's going to become, as time goes on, will be part of what's going to become Samaria. The, the Jews, the poorest of the Jews, get intermarried with the, the Gentiles of that area. And they kind of mix their religions together and become the Samaritans. And that's why the Jews, when they did come back, they considered the Samaritans half-breeds half and below contempt. They were, they were considered even below the Gentiles because they had defiled their heritage. So they were worse than Gentiles, and Gentiles are pretty bad in the eyes of the Jews. So that just kind of sets our stage and trying to get you, as we look at this, and we'll start uh, tearing this apart a little bit. He says in verse 1 in, in Ezekiel 29, or excuse me, 19, Moreover, take you up this lamentation for the princes of Judah. Lamentations, a mourning, sorrowful statement for the princes. And say, what is your mother? A lioness? She lay down among lions. She nourished her whelps among young lions. In this case, the mother is referring to Judah. And remember, Israel started out as a single kingdom. From the time that they left Egypt, they moved into it. It's one kingdom. It's a kingdom under God originally. During Samuel's time, the people rise up and say, hey, we're tired of being, you know, like, not like, unlike all the other nations. We want a king. Before that, the judges ruled over Israel. Uh, and God, and if you remember the story, Samuel gets all irritated that they want a king because basically they're rejecting him. him. But morally, more importantly, they were rejecting Samuel's sons and Samuel's sons were evil they were wicked they did not deserve to be judges and the people said we want a king we want to be and literally what they said we want to be like all the other nations and have a king and God said well tell them that a king is going to take one-tenth of everything they possess we'll take the best fields the best workers the best men and you know because he is the king and that didn't deter the people and basically what what Samuel was saying is the king is going to be like God he's going to take the best of everything that's where tithing came from? Tithing was around long before that. Long before that. Uh, God instituted the tithe, tithing in, in uh, Leviticus and Exodus. But even before that, the, the people were, were tithing because uh, Abraham gave a tenth of everything that he had after the Battle of the Five Kings. And tithing has always been around, and it's just an honor of God. And that's why a lot of people will say, in our day, well, we're not under the law. Well, tithing goes before the law. But it says here, your, your mother, Judah, was a lioness. 
And we see once they became a kingdom, we had Solomon, uh, Saul that ruled, we had David who ruled, and then we had Solomon that ruled, and that was all of Israel in one kingdom. During David and Solomon's time, they had most every bit of the territory that they were supposed to have by the promise of God. They went from the Mediterranean, beyond the Jordan, all the way to the Euphrates, down to Egypt. And they owned or had everybody as a vassal of theirs. So they had their whole territory. After Solomon died, his son took over. Now the people, because Solomon taxed his people pretty heavily because Solomon built lots of things, and when you build things, you tax. We know that even in America, when the government wants to build things, they have to come up with the money somewhere, so they tax the people. Solomon taxed his people severely. So when his son took over the reign, the people go, could you please lower our taxes and be nice to you? And basically, would you lower our taxes and be nice to us and we'll, be, we'll gladly serve you? His son went to his, his dad's advisors and they said, well, yeah, you should really do that. It'd be really good. They'll, they'll love you. He went to his friends and they go, you just tell them, you think my father was bad, just wait until I get done. So 10 tribes split and left. And they became the northern tribes. And the northern tribes were called Israel. And the southern two tribes were called Judah. Okay, so when you read in the Old Testament, you've got to kind of keep in mind, sometimes when they say Israel, they're meaning of everybody, both, both of them, but usually they're talking about the ten tribes. From the time that the ten, the ten tribes in the north started, the very first king said, well, I don't want my people going to Jerusalem to, to worship God. So he instituted golden calf worship, and he put one in the southern part of the kingdom, and he put one up in Dan, and that, he says, this is where you go worship. These are your gods. Idolatry worship was the normal, constant thing in the northern kingdoms, which is why they went into captivity with the Assyrian. They never repented. In the south, we had good and bad kings, and more bad than good, but we had all of these things, and this leads us to where we are at this point of the story. So just giving you quick overviews of our story, trying to give you a little bit of history for, for Israel and Judah in a very quick uh, point. And it says, your mother was a lion. Now this is probably referring to Judah as the nation. Judah in Genesis 49.9, uh, when Jacob placed the blessings on his children, he said, Judah, the scepter will rule, will be with you. You will, you will have a king's in your line forever. And David is of the line of Judah. And so is Jesus. And from his natural human side, he is of the line of Judah because he is David's one of David's descendants. So he is of the tribe of Judah, which is why he can be king of kings and lord of lords for everybody, because he is the proper lineage for the kingship. And so we look at, if you want to go back to Genesis 49 later and read this, it talks about Jacob being the, the ruler. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin, and so he would never be the ultimate ruler. So when he was made to be king, his line just could not exist to, for the Messiah to come and be proper, proper lineage. And this was why all of this stuff with Saul happened and, and led to David becoming king. 
but it says, your mother was a lioness, referring to of the tribe of Judah. And she, it says, she lay down among the lions and nourished her whelps among lions. And lions are both a kingly beast, but they're also proud and arrogant and vicious. And this is what he's bringing out on this. Your mother was that lion, lioness in Judah. They were proud. They were vicious. And we see that most of the way through the kings of Judah have been this way, but especially toward the end. And remember, we looked at this. Jehoiakim rebelled against, against Pharaoh, and he was taken captive by Pharaoh. He put in Jehoiachin, uh, he put in Jehoiachin as, as the king next to him. And he did okay for a while, but then he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, whom he had promised that he would obey. And we talked about that several weeks ago, if not months ago, how Nebuchadnezzar made him swear by his God that he'd be a good vassal, good, good servant, which is why God judged him when he rebelled because he swore by him. Whether he should have or not is another story, but because he made his promise according to God's name, God punished him for breaking that promise. And we did a lot of talking about what all that meant at that time. And so we see she raised up, and she brought up one of her whelps, and it became young, and it learned to catch its prey and devour. And we're talking about Jehoiakim here. And the nation served of him, and he was taken into their pit, and he was brought, and they brought him with chains into the land of Egypt. And that's why we went back and read. King uh, Pharaoh Necro took Jehoiakim captive because of his disobedience, his rebellion. And at this time, the nation still exists at this point, but Pharaoh has been running it for a while. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and conquer that, er conquer that area. And right now, as a nation, even at this point with these last couple kings, Israel, for all practical purposes, it exists, but it doesn't exist. They're, they've got taxes put on them, and we read that. They, they put a thousand talents of, of silver tax on them and a, and, and a talent of gold. And that's a lot of gold and silver going out every year, which is why Jehoiakim rebelled. It's, you know, he was going broke. He couldn't run his own country because he was paying so much in taxes. Kind of like the debt we have to pay in America. It's so large that we really can't afford to do anything but pay our debt. And we see this in families. A lot of families live so far into debt that they're basically doing everything they can just to pay their debt and never get ahead, even though they make, can make a lot of money because they're paying so much in their interest. In this case, Jehoiakim Kim, was paying out a fortune in tax every year. And so he rebelled, you know, as most nations would. He thought he was strong enough. It says he, would, he was thinking he was pretty strong. He'd, he'd made some alliances, and he thought he was strong enough to take on Pharaoh. And you've got to remember, Egypt is a pretty strong country at this point, nation again at this point. They're, they're in their waning days, though, because Nebuchadnezzar is going to take over very soon. And uh, so he rebels, and Pharaoh Necro takes him away in chains and puts in Jehoiachin. This gets kind of complicated because these names sound so close together. Jehoiakim with a K and Jehoiachin with a C-H. So... And he's put in his place. And who was the first cub again? The first one is Jehoiakim. K. With a K. K-I-M? K-I-M. 
Jehoiakim. And they all replaced uh, Zedekiah. <laughs> so, because he was rebellious. <laughs> and he, yeah, these are all, in Judah, no king ever had the throne other than being a son of David. The only person who ruled for a short period of time was a usurper who was a queen. And she tried to run it for a while and she got kicked out within, within months. Huh? Saul wasn't from the line. No, because he was of the Benjamin and he's tri- his, his line was killed out completely. Well, the last battle killed all but like two sons and they were not strong. They were so young that they, they never came up. And uh, you got Meshivasheth, which was Solomon, uh, was Jonathan's son. And David honored him and promoted him just because he loved Jonathan so much and made Meshivasheth sit in the king's house and eat in, in the dinner and everything. Had no authority, but had all the rights of a, that a prince was supposed to have. And he was the last of the, the line. So David protected him. And um, had other problems later on. It's a great story. Read, read what happened to the rest of that family. But it's because of disobedience and everything, they, they lost their lives. But not because, David, not because David lifted his hand against them. Meshivasheth was, was one of his children. But most of their children died in battle, in the last battle that Saul fought, when God finally took him out of the picture. So, all right. Verse 5, And, and when she saw that she had waited and, and her hope was lost, then she took another of her whelps and made him a young lion. And this is not technically Judah making it. It is Pharaoh Necro, uh, Necro, who made uh, Jehoiachin the next, <laughs> next one of David's line to rule. And one of the things, if you remembered, we, we read in, those, uh, in Kings and Chronicles, all of these kings are evil. None of them serve God. They go back on their word. They're dishonest. They're, they're basically vicious. They're trying to do things men's way. They're idol worshipers, if you get into more of their history. And this is why they are being destroyed at the end. Because for a long period of time, every king, the last kings of even Judah were idol worshipers. They were not following God. And finally, God, even though he is patient and merciful, his patience and his mercy does run out. And he will bring judgment upon people. And in the case of the kings... It was necessary for this to happen because they influenced the whole nation. And this is, in Proverbs, it tells us where the righteous rule, the people rejoice, and where the unrighteous rule, the people mourn. And we see this in all through history. When there's a righteous leader, things go well for the people because they're following after God. When it's an unrighteous leader, number one, the unrighteous leaders are, you know, don't care about the country. And they, just, they basically dismantle it and do what they think is best for themselves. And the country suffers. And this is what's going on in Judah at this time. The country's suffering. They're getting further and further away from God. They're still God's people in name. They still consider themselves Jews. They still have the temple. They're still offering sacrifices. But while they're offering sacrifices to God on Saturday, they're going to every other <coughs> temple and altar and offering sacrifices to the gods 
the false gods as well. And this is the sad thing that people do, and we see it even today when people will come to church and worship God on Sunday and then basically worship whatever other gods they have all week long. And, and you know, we like to say, well, we don't have gods. Well, we have gods all over the place. There's people who make gods out of sports, whether it's playing the sports or watching the sports. They've got people who make God out of work and everything that they do is based upon their work or literally straight money sometimes. I just need money. And they'll, and they'll overspend because they just have to have everything that money can buy. And it can be the goddess of lasciviousness and, and, and sex that people worship at the feet of. We still have all the gods that have ever existed are still in today's world. We just don't have great big stone and silver statues of them. But they're still worshipped the same way. The fertility goddesses and gods were worshipped with sexual activity in the in their temples. We still have people that are going out and, and worshiping at the altar of sex. They just don't have an idol that they're doing it in front of. We still have people that are worshiping in front of Moloch, the god of, of, of success in the business world, trying to do everything they can and, and will sacrifice everything to be successful. We still have the worship of all these gods going on today, and sometimes by Christians. So. We want to be careful when we, when we look at this. Is our whole heart focused on God? And this is something we need to be really seriously considering. We're to love the Lord our God with all our strength, our soul, and our might, everything about us. Our whole being is supposed to be worshiping God. And many of us worship him in our spirit, but not in our soul and our strength. Maybe sometimes in our strength, but not necessarily in our, in our soul, the seat of our emotions. And God wants everything. He wants every part of us to be worshiping him. And this becomes critical when we think about it. He is going to have true worship, not just a bunch of rules. And that's what the last chapter was all about. People were worshiping him by following rules. And they were saying, you know, oh, God, you're unfair. We've done all these good things and you're going to judge us. And God says, if you turn away from your, uh, your works and do evil, then you get your judgment. We know it as the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. One sin is all it takes to take somebody to hell by God's standards. We've got to understand that. The world doesn't understand it. They don't want to understand it. And we need to be able to understand, bring them to understanding sin God must judge. He must judge the sin. That's his holy, righteous standard. If he didn't, he would be unjust. And he's going to judge sin. Now, how did he judge sin for, for us? He put it all on Christ. He judged Christ for the sin that he bore for us so that we could have the righteousness of Christ as, as his children. And all it takes is accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. Jesus took the punishment for our sin. We get to accept, get his righteousness by accepting that judgment. And we've got to understand that. And one of the things... Uh, that I've been watching, because I've been watching the Way of the Master series that just came in for me, and we're going to be starting that in the church, but they're really talking about how in modern days, we're not teaching people that they're sinners as much when we evangelize. We're trying to teach them, you need God, he's all good. And you know, and I, that message resonated with me, because that really is the way most churches talk about, you need God, he's good. You know, he is good, but that's not why we need him. We need him because he's the only way to salvation. 
because he is totally righteous. He is going to judge evil and will reward us only when we're walking in Christ's righteousness. And it's very important for us to understand this. God is, would be unrighteous if he didn't judge evil. And he is the righteous one. He is the holy one. And it says here that this, this young lion, in verse 6, he went up and down among the lions, and he became a young lion, and learned to catch prey, and devoured men. And Jehoiakim Achin was doing the same thing. He was trying to raise up his army. And it says, and he knew their desolate palaces, which means abandoned, or literally means wi- widowed palaces. And there's some people who believe that he actually did abuse widows and knew them sexually and stuff. They think he was that bad. But he also, it could literally be the poetic term that he just went to the places that were deserted and made them his. Uh, and that would, you know, if place is deserted, it's usually not wanted. So <laughs> kind of interesting that he took all the places nobody wanted and made them his, if that's the, if that's the literary, what it is. It says he laid waste their cities and the land was desolate and the fullness of their, and the noise of his roaring. It says, because he was so bad, the nation set up a gun against him on all sides. <laughs> and that takes us back to when God said he set up the, the, Amorite, the bands of the Amorites and the, and the Moabites and all these other nations to go against him. And these are, the, these are the type of people that were raising up to be the king. They all had a lot of pride. They all thought they were the greatest thing since sliced bread and they were going to set up a new kingdom. They were going to restore Israel back to it, you know, Judah and Israel back to its proper, proper place. And you've got to remember on this, David, every one of David's seeds always was hoping that he would be the one that would be the Messiah, the one that would set up the kingdom, the savior of their nation. Because all of them have been waiting for that savior to come along and set up the kingdom of Israel so they would be the center of everything. Just as Revelation tells us, much of the Old Testament tells us about how Israel was going to be the center of all commerce. All the governments were going to rule in Jerusalem. And they were going to come to Jerusalem as the, as the kingdom. And this is something that was read over and over and over again. This is why when Jesus came to this world, he was decided that he couldn't be the Messiah because he didn't start the kingdom. He didn't get rid of Rome and establish Israel as the center of the world. That's what they were waiting for. That's not going to happen until the millennial kingdom when Jesus rules from Jerusalem for a thousand years. That is when that will be fulfilled. But Jesus was considered a failure because he didn't get rid of Rome. This is what the disciples were expecting. They were following the Messiah. This is why when Jesus kept talking about dying on a cross and resurrecting, it made no sense to them because it is not what they were expecting. And they would just hear these words and it would just hit, you know, bounce right off their heads, basically, because it didn't compute. It wasn't, what, it wasn't what they were. They were in a position they expected to be the dukes and the, and the earls and the squires. They expected to be set up in the, in the royal court of the new king. And when he died... They were, in a, they were completely in a panic, which is why they were hiding in the upper room. They were waiting for soldiers to come and take them away to kill them because they just got the leader that they were following, the Messiah in their mind, was dead. This is why 
we need to be careful as well. What do we believe? Do we believe correctly? Do we bend what we believe to what the scriptures say always? Because it is real easy to get stuck and drift away from what the word says because we get preconceived ideas. The church in the 1800s when the, when the, when the scientists were starting to teach uh, evolution, they were going, well, science is teaching us science must be right. And what did they do? Instead of believing the Bible was the Bible and going to the Bible, they tried to squeeze science somehow into the Bible. And it, the, the bad science of the day did not fit into the Bible. And there were some very weird things that came out of that day to try to explain how the two, two met, met together. We need to be dogmatic when we know that we're within Scripture, but yet flexible enough that if the Scripture says something different, that we follow what Scripture says. And this is very important. When we are studying scripture, if we find that it says something different than what we believe, then we need to search it out and make sure, is what I believe right and I misunderstood what I read? Or is what I read right and I've been taught wrong and I need to change? There are those times when we need to change. But we need to make sure that we're changing for the right reasons. And very important that we get into the word and say, God, what is it that you want me to understand? And one of my things that scared me is because I hear so much about eschatology, which is the study of end times, and some of the teaching is very dogmatic. This is what it means. Well, I can tell you one thing. I've been listening and studying eschatology for more than 30 years. And it's been amazing how much of it has changed just in 30 years. And then you go back to some of the really old writing and see how Everything used to be in Revelation used to be considered at all symbolic. There is no way all this stuff can happen. You know, one of the great ones was that the whole world would be watching the witnesses when they resurrected and they would be celebrating and having parties. Well, up, and up until about the 90s, that was definitely considered symbolic. They'd go, there's no way the whole world could watch this activity. In our, day, in our day, we know exactly how it would be. There'd be a satellite channel, you know, witnesses, watch the witnesses 24-7. Uh, we know, you know, we want to be very careful in how dogmatic we get, especially on prophecy. Because we might be just like the disciples, miss something totally. There might be some, you know, thing that we don't understand that's going to be between now and then. We want to be very careful with this dogmatism, on, on especially on eschatology and times. One thing to be dogmatic about things in the past. They're, they're gone. They're, they're history. We know exactly what's happened. We know that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. And we can point to those scriptures and say, here they are. But we want to be very careful about future events. And believe me, I, I've listened to many of these guys who want to teach on, on end times. And they sound wonderful. They've got everything all down. They've got the timeline right down. They'll show it to you. They've got the graphs and the pictures, and, and they have it all down, down pat. Not saying that they're bad teachers, not saying that they're dishonest, but we need to be careful that we don't get too dogmatic. Because like I say, over 40 years, I have seen some major changes in what's been, what's been taught. It's been vacillating over the last few years on whether it's going to be Russia or Iraq or Persia and that whole area that's going to attack Israel. And it's all that area to be blunt. But you know, it used to be, during, especially during the Cold War, it was going, obviously it had to be Russia. Russia was the big enemy up north of, of Israel. Now we're starting to pull back and say, well, it might just be Iraq because Iraq is the center of the Muslim uh, 
empire being developed to go against them. So we're seeing a lot of differences. And you know, so just be saying, listen carefully, but don't get too dogmatic about end times. Because lots of people love it. It's a fun topic to look at to a degree. But like I say, it's changed so much for me. I, I, don't, I don't really get into eschatology that much anymore. I, I know it. I've studied it. I know the prevailing truths. But I don't focus a lot on it because it changes. It changes with all the news that people apply to it. It's fun watching it and applying the news and seeing how well it fits. Don't get too too stuck in the mud on what it has to mean. And so they set up the. They spread their nets. They conquered him. The king of Babylon took him away in chains, and put one of his own one of his own people in there. So we see this, and now we start in the, the verse ten. It says. Your mother is like a vine in your blood, planted by the water. She is fruitful and, and full of branches by reason of the waters. Okay, so here we are. Who is this mother? This one is determined that it's probably Jerusalem. It might be Judah, but most people believe that it's Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is where Jesus is going to reign from. It is the seat of power. As opposed to Jerusalem, the righteous place is Babylon. Babylon is evil. It's evil from the very beginning of, of scriptures. And unfortunately, that's where Nebuchadnezzar is ruling out of. Even though Nebuchadnezzar is going to become righteous and follow, follow God, Babylon is centered in the evil side of thing. Babylon is established by Nimrod just a couple hundred years after the flood. And all of the false religions flow from Nimrod and, the, and, the, and Babylon. And Babylon is in, in the book of Revelation, rising up and, and ruling again. Now, whether it's Babylon the city, Babylon the religion, it's probably both, but it could be either one of them. I believe definitely it's the religion. The religion itself will rise up and, and take reign. And whether that is in Babylon, and I think it probably is by reading, reading and studying, but again, I'm not going to get dogmatic on that one at all. Because it could be wherever the false religion is headquartered. And that could be in just about any city. And, but it says, your mother is like a, a vine planted by waters. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of all that goes on in the, in the Middle East. It is the timepiece for all of the future. It is the timepiece for when Jesus comes back and actually comes back at the end of the seven years Steps on Mount, Olive, Mount Olivet, it splits, creating a refreshing stream of water into the, into the dry places, and Jesus rules from Jerusalem. And he rules from Jerusalem. At the very end of Revelation, we see the city, the new Jerusalem, coming down into the new heaven and a new earth that's created around it. It splits. It splits. Uh, can't remember if it's east, west, north, or south, but it it refreshes the the Dead Sea is made alive, and that whole area is is refreshed. Yeah, I can't remember where that's at. We'll I'll find it if we need to. But yeah, it's he steps on it. The mountain splits. Water flows from the mountain, refreshing the world. A lot of people say it's also figurative because Jesus is ruling, and fresh water well, <laughs> flows out. Yeah. A lot of people want to make it all physic, uh, just spiritual, but I do believe the, the wording on it indicates that it is also 
a reality in physical action. And this goes back to whenever I study, uh, talk about prophecy, I will say the first rule of the interpretation of the Bible or hermeneutics is that if, it's, if the literal sense makes sense, don't seek any symbolic, okay? So if it can make sense literally, you take it literally. Can it mean something spiritually as well? Possibly. But the moment you start getting away from the Bible says what it says and means what it says, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And we get that with the liberal theologians all the time. They go, well, it doesn't really mean this. It, and they give you this big, long picture. And we want to be careful because anytime you start saying that the literal does not mean what it literally says, you start getting in trouble. And those people will read the story of Daniel and the lions, then, oh, well, it really wasn't, there wasn't a lot of lions. He went in with one. He was able to keep the lion at bay. Okay, no, it says he went into a lion's den. And if they're, you know, the funny thing is, if what they're saying is true, when he was taken out of that lion's den and those 120 people and their families were thrown in, that was one vicious lion to kill all 120 of them before they even touched the ground. Okay, there's those people that will say that the children of Israel didn't cross the Red Sea, they crossed the Sea of Reeds, which is only about two feet deep. Okay, well, fine, you want to say that they crossed the Red Sea, the Sea of Reed on dry land? That's pretty good, but, but Pharaoh's ar entire army drowned in two feet of water? You're talking about some pretty big miracles. Okay, uh, we want to be careful because when we start spiritualizing and trying to explain away things, you start creating some interesting dilemmas <laughs> further in. So the very, anytime you're studying the Bible, just remember, if it makes sense to read it the way it's written and it makes sense, then that's what it means. Okay? If it's obviously a spiritual thing, it was like this happening, or this is, it is similar to, then that's talking about some kind of symbol and you're not taking it literally. Uh, if it's something that is so bizarre out there that you really can't understand it, you can take it, you might start leaning towards symbols. But that takes us again, for centuries the, the, the scholars were saying, well, there's no way that people could, the whole world could watch the, the witnesses. You know, so even be careful if you say it has to be symbolic, be very careful because it said that the whole world would watch them. Now, how was that going to happen? We didn't know. We should have just said the whole world's going to watch them and then wait for technology to catch up and for us to understand it by technology. So again, if it makes sense, don't try to figure out how to make it say something else. And especially when you're dealing with prophecy. Uh, can these symbolic things mean something? Yes. When we talked about the tabernacle, there was a literal building that was built, but we, went, we spent a long time talking about how the gold represents deity and the silver represents redemption and the brass represents judgment and talked about how they were placed in the right places and the colors and everything and all the symbology. Was that to destroy the fact that the temple was built with these things? No, but it was to say it was much more than just the tabernacle that was built. So is it possible some of these other spiritualized things are true? might be. But don't put all your faith in these spiritualized <laughs> scriptures. People will say, well, Jonah never was thrown over the, overboard on the ship and swallowed by a fish and carried back to, to Nineveh. Well, that's what the Bible says. And they'll spiritualize it because they just don't want the miracles. Uh, 
People will even take the 10 plagues of Egypt and start spiritualizing them and say, well, this is what happened, and this is what happened, and this is what happened. It's like, okay, fine, but let's not forget that what happened was it was a battle of the gods, period. And even if you can find some reason for why it happened, it still happened at the right time that God said it was going to happen. And there was no way Moses could have predicted all of that. So we want to be very careful as we read the, read the Bible and just make sure we understand. If it makes sense, read it literally. If it becomes obvious that it's not, not making sense, and usually that means they use the word like or as or similar to or, or it's very clearly a story that they're telling you like this one. You know, we weren't literally seeing lions here. We're definitely being shown a poetic story, uh, uh, statements here. Okay, it wasn't, Israel didn't really have lions ruling over it. It's just saying the lion is the strength. Okay, so with this one, we won't take this literal because there weren't real live lions <laughs> running the country. Uh, much of Proverbs is poetry that's not meant to be read literally. Even though some of the lessons can be taken literally, it's not necessarily because it's poetry. Mm-hmm. Like a vine. So it's not talking about a vine. So it's, we don't have to figure out, okay, who's the mother that's like a vine? And it's probably Judah, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, could possibly be Judah, but Judah's been evil and everything. So I tend to believe that it's Jerusalem. I've read it both ways in, in different commentaries, but I think it's Jerusalem. And because Jerusalem is what's fruitful. Jerusalem has become the center of everything. And it says she was fruitful and, and her branches... Uh, were fruitful and full because of the many waters. She had a strong rod of, for the sepulchers of them that bear rule, and her stature exalted among the thick branches, and she appeared in her height, the multitude of her branches, and this is talking about uh, David and Solomon coming out of them, and Hezekiah and, and Manasseh before at the end of his reign, and, and Hezekiah, the good kings of Israel that ruled with strength and brought, were thick rods. And ultimately, the best, of her, the best of her branches will be Jesus, the, the, the rod of, of Jesse. He is going to be the ultimate and the, the ruling one. He, he's going to rule for eternity when he came. And in verse uh, 12, but. But means something is changing. But she was plucked up in, her fu in fury and she was cast down to the ground and cast and the east wind dried up her fruit, and her rods were broken and withered, and fire consumed them. Israel was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. Totally conquered. The, the temple is going to be destroyed. The last of the kings of, in the line of David are going to die. And then there won't be another king for David until Jesus is born. From that point on, there won't be a king from David's seed, David's line. What was the time lapse there? We, let's see, what was the time lapse there? It was uh, 600, 600 years, I think it was, until, no, no, Jehoiachin. Oh, long after Solomon. You've got 800 years there. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're right at, this is all happening right at the end of the kingdom. 
And Malachi is going to be the last book that's written that we know of. And there's a 400-year gap between anything written in the Old Testament to Jesus' birth. Approximately 400. Huh? How are they These guys? They're great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Many years. There's about 800 years. There's a long time. I'd have to get the whole chart out, but it's... Yeah, uh, so we're several hundred years from David and Solomon. Uh, you got David, Solomon, and then these guys are going to be the tail end. And they're going to be ca- taken captive. Israel's going to not exist for 70 years. It's not going to exist. And then Cyrus is going to send them back to their country. And they're going to start building things and building their area up and, and working on fixing it up. But they're never going to be a kingdom again. They're going to be a country, but they're never going to be the kingdom that they were. And they're never going to have their own king from that point on. They're back to being almost a theocracy. And that's where the whole Sanhedrin and all of that stuff starts being formed. So we see them coming back. Cyrus sends them back to the land. And that's the period of Ezra and Nehemiah and Ezra. They build the second temple. The, that temple is going to be added to in Herod's day, which is why it gets to be called the Temple of Herod. And it's never going to look the same as it did in the past. And in 70 AD, for the second time, the temple is going to be ravished and Jerusalem is going to go through war and there's going to be problems. Now, they don't totally get Jerusalem destroyed, but the nation is scattered around, around the world by, by Rome because of their rebellion. And they were not a nation again until 1948 when they became a nation again. So Israel has quite a history of being broken up completely on two occasions and be, and be reestablished as a nation on two occasions, as well as their first miraculous occasion. So they are God's precious people, and he has not let them be destroyed. And so we see all of this going on. It says in verse 13, And now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. So they were scattered around the world in a dry, barren place. And, her, and there was going to be destroyed. And there's no strong scepter to rule, and that will be true until Jesus comes to reign in power. And that won't happen until the very end of the very end of time or close to the end of time. And we're going to see all of this that happens. And like I said, this is just one big long history lesson that he's putting into flowery language. But the people understood it. They understood what was going on because he says, This is the lament for these princes. They have failed. They have been evil. They have been doing the wrong things, and God is bringing on the judgment. He has taken out. And as far as from their point of view, the kingdom of David is gone. There's still kings, you know, his children are still existent. The princes are all in Babylon. They have been raised up. Some of them have been raised up into authority, like Daniel. He's of the royal line. I don't know how close to the royal line he was, but he's of the royal line. And he's going to be raised up and be able to bring godly influences into uh, Babylon and into uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And he's going to influence the 
kingmakers tribe that is ruling the Medians and the Persians. And they're going to be the ones that come in to visit Jesus when he's born because Daniel installed, instilled the, 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 the prophecies into their, into their understanding. And they're going to come and worship the king when he's born. So we're going to see all of this stuff and how it all interacts as we look at the Bible. And it's an amazing thing how the Bible all interacts with each other and lifts itself up and shows how true it is. And this is the wonderful thing. As we look at the Bible, we know that it's true. Why? Because it all so intricately fits together and lifts up and builds up, correlates, and doesn't have any problems with the way it intermixes. And so we want to look at that. But again, my biggest point is let's be careful when we look at it that we understand what the Bible says, not what we think it says. Because it's real easy to get into what we think. It can, from, it can become as, as simple as, I heard a pastor say something. Now, I try when it's something that I'm giving my opinion to let you know this is my opinion so that you know it's worth what it is. Now, I've studied a long time and I've got a lot of study, so my opinion may mean just a little more than some people's, but it's still my opinion and doesn't mean anything necessarily. Not all pastors are real good about telling them this is what I think. They just say it and they say it as if it's absolutely true without and not back it up. We also get that done a lot of times in Sunday school classes we'll do that. A teacher or a student will say something that isn't necessarily true and it doesn't get corrected. We have a lot of that in today's world. We're doing a lot of teaching. There's a lot of teaching that goes on that is supposed to be discussion. You watch a video and people discuss it. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but no, somebody has to moderate it who knows what they're talking about so that when the discussion goes off on, into right field and totally off the, off the track, somebody says, no, 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 we're, we need to get it back. You're not, you're not going where, where it's supposed to be. Yeah, because everybody can have an opinion, but an opinion is not worth anything you know, if it's not based in some kind of fact. And this is why groups have to be moderated on those discussions to say, this is what's going on. I love the Truth Project. I teach during the Truth Project. And you're supposed to just moderate at it. And I was in a group or heard about a group one time where the guy literally just moderated. And they went into all kinds of unbiblical, ungodly discussions. And the moderator goes, well, I'm just the moderator. I can't you know, get your act together and bring that back. You're a godly moderator. Bring it back. So we want to be careful. It's very important that we stay focused on what God says because everybody has opinions. Some opinions are better than others. I mean, if somebody's a well-trained, knows what they're talking about, their opinion is probably worth a little bit more than the guy who's just saying, "Well, I think it is," you know, and pulling it out, pulling it out of their hat. There are times when you want to call somebody out on something, but usually it's not that big a deal. When we're witnessing, we really need to get to the place where we're calling people out that they're sinners. Because until they believe that they're a sinner, they're not, they're not going to get saved. Uh, I can teach them how, how good God is and how much they want to really, they should be following him. But until they really believe that they're a sinner, there's nothing to be saved from them because you, the cross is the only thing that's going to bring them into salvation. And you're not going to come to the cross until you accept that you're a sinner and need what happened on the cross. And this is something that's important. We are sinners, period. The Bible tells us that, and until we truly believe that we're sinners, we don't need the cross. You may offend them, that's beside the point. Jesus offended people all the time. 
Uh, Jesus was very much in people's face, you know, to, about their sin. He was loving about it. You can, be, you can be confrontive of people without being aggressive and nasty, but you, you may offend people. And we are just afraid to offend people, and that's a problem. We have to be understanding that sometimes we're teaching a lesson that's going to be offensive, plain and simple. The message of the cross is offensive. Most Christians are trying to do just what I'm saying, trying not to be offensive. Well, I can't tell people they're a sinner. They might get offended. Well, they're going to be a whole lot more offended when they end up in hell because you didn't want to offend them by telling them they were a sinner. And this is where love comes in. Can I tell somebody that they're a sinner in love? And they may or may not get offended, but my love should be willing enough to say, you're headed the wrong direction. Because the last thing you want is somebody to go to hell because you didn't want to offend them. I would rather offend somebody, and I've offended many in my family over the years because I give them the gospel. There is no way anybody in my family is going to be able to look at me on, on the white throne judgment and say, you never told me because I told them. Now, did I tell them every single time I saw them? No, but they've all been told at some point that they're a sinner, they deserve punishment, and Jesus is the way out of that punishment. We must go through that process because otherwise there are going to be people that we know that are going to look at us on that day and they say, you never told me. Our job is not to convince people of their need for the Savior. Our job is to tell them that they need the Savior. The first step in being, and I've said this over and over, the first step in getting them to accept Christ is they've got to understand that they're lost that they are a sinner and that they deserve punishment. Until they understand that, the rest of the message is, is nothing to them. In the way of the master, they have this, this idea. If they, and I love their example, and you guys will hear it if you're going to be part of the class, but they go, if somebody comes up to you and say, hey, this guy just paid your, paid your fee for court. You know, if you didn't know that you had a fee for court, it really, you know, you're going to be insulted, number one. You're like, you think I'm a bad person, or what are you talking about? And this is what most Christians do. You need Jesus so you can go to heaven. Well, you think I'm a bad person. First, we've got to tell them that they are a bad person. You, know, you are a bad person. You have sinned. That means we have to, number one, be ready to say that sin is sin. And there are a lot of Christians in our day and age that don't want to call sin, sin. All right, let's go ahead and close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you go before us and help us to see what you would have us to see this week. Give us opportunities to share the gospel with people, to let people know that they need you because they are sinners, that they are headed for hell without you, and that they need your gift. And you are the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to you, the Father, but through you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.